Well, g'day. Uh, welcome to Pello Talk. I'm Dave Pello, and uh, today I'm having a, a rather impromptu, unannounced conversation. This isn't part of a regular schedule, and I think I'd like to actually try and do a little bit more of these random conversations, as well as the weekly Pello Talk. We'll be doing that tomorrow morning, uh, 11 a.m. Uh, Eastern Daylight Saving Time, 10 a.m. Brisbane, 8 a.m. Perth. And uh, we're going to be talking about transhumanism tomorrow with a Christian academic who has written the book on how the uh, World Economic Forum's transhumanism uh, announced and published policies and ideas align with what God says about our humanity and the sacredness of our identity and, and just how much is beneficial to fiddle with that before it crosses the line and we start being idolatrous and actually playing God uh, ourselves. So that's a very interesting topic. Uh, uh, she's going to be fantastic to introduce because she's also talking uh, a, a presentation, a, a sermon, if you like, on transhumanism at the Church and State Conference in Dolby, uh, which is going to be on the 26th of November. So look out for that. I need to also mention uh, of course, we're doing the Church and State Conference in Adelaide this Saturday. If you haven't got tickets yet, head to uh, churchandstate.com.au and um, jump on the the uh, website there. There's three conferences you can choose from, Adelaide, Dolby and Brisbane coming up. Uh, that would be fantastic to get you along to anyone or all of those. Um, and they're very different conferences. The summit is two days. It's huge. It's lots of guest speakers. Dolby is going to be uh, five speakers in five hours speaking multiple times, a big time for Q&A, and uh, it's going to be for a country event. Um, the city event in Adelaide, uh, there's great catering, great venue. It's in the CBD, uh, and um, it's Senator Alex Antic and a whole bunch of other people, Kiralee Smith, myself, James McPherson, Pastor Todd Weatherly, going to be there as well as some representatives from some of the minor parties. And uh, we're going to be talking about a whole range of issues, um, which is going to be a whole lot of fun. So make sure you get onto churchandstate.com.au uh, and grab your tickets to one or all of those. Great early bird prices for the summit, which is still a ways away. Uh, that'll be in March next year. Now, today, I want to have a chat, and you probably clicked on the title and seen the, the question I want to discuss today is what is a true conservative? Uh, it's a little bit provocative. I know one person's definition of conservative might be a little bit self-serving, like oh, I'm a true conservative and those people aren't. I'd, I'd have to admit to that. I don't think Malcolm Turnbull is a conservative. I don't think uh, James McGrath is a conservative. I don't think Simon Birmingham is a conservative. In fact, the people who call themselves moderates, they don't even call themselves conservatives, to be fair. I don't believe they belong in the Liberal Party. I think they're left of centre and, and shouldn't be in a right of centre party. But the term conservative is taken by a lot of people. There's a lot of Sky News presenters, for example, that might call themselves conservative, but they're not pro-life. And if you uh, allow for the intentional murder of a living human at any stage, in any circumstance, for any reason, other than natural triage ethics, uh, then can you call yourself a conservative? Well, we're going to explore these questions and a whole lot of other tests. Uh, and we're going to try and be intellectually honest not subjective, and uh, I know no better person for that than uh, our guest today. Um, and so I'm going, oh, Windows wants me to start. That's going to be annoying. Uh, sorry, on my laptop here. Look, we're going to oh, go away, Windows. Sorry, everybody. Live show. 
Um, we're going to have a talk to Dr. Jonathan Cole in just a minute. This is Pello Talk, and I'm Dave Pello. May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. Well, hello again. And uh, joining me right now is Dr. Jonathan Cole. John, welcome to Palo Talk. Thanks for tuning in. Dave, it's always a pleasure to be chatting to you. Now, I love watching you on Facebook and Twitter and, and your podcast. You've always got really deep probing questions and um and uh, you, you really help, I think, Christians and right-thinking people who, who may not be religious uh, and perhaps even the narrow group of, of conservatives to actually be honest with ourselves, our, our campaigns, our strategies, our actions, the freedom movement, federal elections, uh, our messaging and, and uh, those people we lead and follow or, or the lack thereof. Um, and I love that because I think that is, is critically important. It's one of the things I think is sorely missing in the entire population. Uh, probably five years ago, it was something that I diagnosed as the worst thing about the left. Uh, they live in this echo chamber. They've got zero intellectual honesty or self-awareness, lots of double standards, which are better than none. Uh, and, and it was just something I diagnosed of them. And you know what? Over the last two or three years, um, especially as we saw authoritarianism come down, um, or what I call, you know, behaviour certainly leaning into the direction of authoritarianism, just trampling on basic human rights like freedom of movement and and uh, commerce. Um, I, I saw that even on my side, even in the the very small freedom movement, um, there was this reluctance to actually be self-critical and and look for those ways that we can be more effective. And, and more honest. So I, you know, I've, I've told you this before, and I, I actually don't say it to boost your ego, but to, to understand that for the viewers, that this is what we're trying to accomplish when I get Jonathan Cole onto Pello Talk. It, it's so I can become better, so we can become better. Now, one of the conversations uh, you've been having a lot on your page recently is just exploring the idea of conservatism. What is it? Um, who are our thinkers? Who are our leaders? Um, and and how do we how do we actually become better? Um, now, before I flick over to you, there's, there's probably one other thing I want to uh, preface this conversation with, and that is that I don't choose to be conservative. Um, I acknowledge the fact that it's probably the box that most of my values fit into, um, and therefore it's it's convenient. Um, it's trendy to say I hate labels, but the reality is they have some use. Um, and and I am conservative, but I I will always choose consciously, even if I, I don't, um, you know, if I'm not able to be fully aware of my blind spots. I I choose consciously to synchronize and calibrate myself with God, the kingdom of God, the word of God. Um, and so, if there's any area of conservatism that doesn't align with with God, 
that is actually what I want to choose to change. Um, and so I don't try to be conservative. Uh, if, if somebody says this is what a conservative is and I think God disagrees with that, then I would happily leave that part of conservatism out. Um, and I'd encourage anybody listening to, to do that as well, just even if you're not a Christian, just to embrace the fact that truth is objective. Um, and if you say it's not, well, you're making a truth claim that you expect everybody else to submit to. So it's a bit of a self-defeating um, rebuttal. Jonathan, um, let's start with a broad picture. Uh, what is the state of conservatism in the 21st century world? And how is it today relative to the time it was perhaps first starting to be articulated and codified in, 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 in thinking and, and philosophy over recent centuries? Wow. There are some big questions, but one's uh, absolutely worth diving into. I think conservatism currently, we can only generalise if we're taking on, <clears throat> excuse me, the entire concept of conservatism is in a state of flux. And I think that flux reflects the rather radical social, cultural changes that have occurred over the last decade to two decades. And the flux is a consequence of conservatives grappling with this new situation and new environment that, to be frank, the great intellects of conservatism of yesteryear couldn't have envisaged. So, I mean, Edmund Burke, just to take the, the sort of godfather of conservatism, if you mm. like, going back to the late 18th century in his famous response to the French Revolution and his critique of the French Revolution, which set conservative thought down a certain path and a really good, good path, a path that is very wary of radical change. I mean, he could not have conceived of a world in which uh, people could change their genders, allegedly, mm. and in a world in which we were debating things like euthanasia, he probably couldn't have imagined a world in which uh, states enabled abortion right up until birth, with some people debating whether <laughs> it might be appropriate to even do it close after birth. So I just point out that the tradition which uh, developed... Uh, in relation to the or in response to the French Revolution and since then developed right up until, let's say, the Cold War in the 20th century, which was a, a touchstone issue that, on the one hand, kept conservatives united, gave them something very clear uh, to show their opposition to. We're now in a radically different environment. And so I think conservatism is in a state of flux and it's in a state I would even go so far as saying crisis because I think wow. uh, conservatives feel besieged, they feel isolated, they feel irrelevant, they feel anxious, they feel, they feel fearful. And I'm not going to say that any of those emotions or none of those emotions might not be warranted to some extent, but this all reflects the fact that the ground has shifted so much that I actually think conservatism needs to reimagine itself <laughs> for a new context because Interesting. the great thinkers of the past weren't speaking to our context and their thought is uh, excellent and an excellent guide. So we want to stay within that framework. That is the essence of conservatism is to stand within a particular intellectual tradition and an approach to 
politics, culture, and society that is in some sense timeless, but we have to become more subtle and nimble and creative, I think, in terms of how to respond to our new context. Yep. Well, let me um, let me start perhaps with a bigger question, which by its largeness may be easier to answer. Um, and, I'll, and I'll ask it in two parts, and the second part may be the more complicated part. Uh, and that is what, for those uh, people playing at home who, who haven't never read Edmund Burke or John Locke or, or, or any of the thinkers, uh, they've only, um, I guess, listened to what they can find on the internet in, in quick digests, which we're going to offer them now. Uh, what, what is the classical definition of a conservative? What are some of the hallmarks or, or paradigms of, of that political philosophy? And, and, and then in the second part, uh, which of those may, may be under jeopardy or, or less um, useful? Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to think of the right way to articulate this, but w- which of them just aren't convenient today? Which of them are, are less pragmatic? And, and, um, and which of them need to be reimagined given the society uh, we're, we're now in? Look, the, the definition or perhaps better, the essence of what constitutes conservatism, what is or makes a conservative is notoriously difficult because one of its defining marks, at least historical, historically, was an aversion to ideology, abstract, closed, systematic, arbitrary thought systems. And so conservatism has always been uh, a much looser organic system of thought that actually has a lot more leeway for differences of opinion, or at least that mm. was what it was supposed to be historically. Now, that, of course, makes it much harder to define than, say, socialism, where you can, okay, it's, it's a planned economy, government owns all of the means of production, and you can really lay out very articulately what socialism is. Conservatism is a lot more difficult to talk about because it's a set of principles, it's an attitude or a disposition, it's a a worldview, it's a particular view of the human being, it's a particular view of what politics is, what the end of politics is, but it's not necessarily a prescriptive set of policies, although sometimes it does devolve to that, and that's one of the big trends these days. I think the right is imbibing, in my view, some of the worst pathologies of the left, and it's becoming very dogmatic and and doctrinaire Mm. and starting to police thought within itself. And, of course... So you think that would would fit me if I say uh, those Sky News commentators who are pro-abortion in some cases therefore cannot be true conservatives? Well, I... This is where it gets very complex. So my view is uh, because at the apex of conservative values, in my view, ought to be freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, the collection of freedom of religion, the collection of uh, freedoms. That's not just what conservative conservatism is about, but they are very important mm. uh, principles. Then in my view, it's a futile and pointless effort to spend too much time worrying about who is and who isn't a conservative. So the attitude I take is 
I take seriously all individuals who describe themselves as conservative, and I'm willing to acknowledge that the boundaries of conservatism basically mirrors the total sum of people who are willing to embrace the term. I mean, few people who aren't serious about conservatism are willing to use the term. It's not exactly... <laughs> A term. That's not um, bad, you know, because as as I said in my introduction, there are people in the Liberal Party who flee the term conservative and prefer the term moderate, Um, and and I think self qualify themselves for the left um, in their aversion to the term conservative. Um, But uh, you know, um, I I think that's an interesting idea. If somebody is willing to call themselves a conservative, uh, you know, Patrick Lum has commented watching live that conservatism is now a bad word. It is seen as old-fashioned amongst the youth and young adults, and we need a new marketing approach to rebrand the values. Maybe the fact that it's a little bit uh, uncool or a lot uncool um, is actually useful to help identify uh, this question we're discussing right now. Who is a true conservative and, and should we worry about that? Well, uh, I take your point. If they're willing to be called a conservative, maybe that's a pretty high bar already. But that, that said, um, Dave, and I completely agree with Patrick, by the way, I mean, conservatism has a massive brand problem and that is a serious challenge actually. And that, that's partly why I talk about reinvigorating conservatism because I think when you feel under siege and you circle the wagons, you don't actually put in any effort to selling conservatism, introducing it to young people um, and just vacating that space of ideas to let mm. alternatives like and, the you know, that's actually one of the objectives of this video right now. Although I choose to be a Christian and and coincidentally a conservative, <clears throat> um, I, I I do see the need to sell, for want of a better term, um, advocate and and proselytize the concepts that are encapsulated in in what I think is classical conservatism. So what aspects of that do you think are needing some rejigging or, or rethinking um, in, in this post-postmodern society? Look, I think conservatism in the public eye, and particularly for those who wouldn't necessarily embrace the term, has become characterised by the things that it opposes. Now, opposing certain things has always been an essential part of what it means to be a conservative. This goes back to the, the Burke opposition or the Burkean opposition to the, the French Revolution. And boy, did he call that one correctly. And so mm-hmm. there are always going to be things and, and there are just, this is part of the, the challenge for conservatives is we live in an age where there are many things which need to be opposed for the good of both individuals, but also the good of human flourishing and society culture more generally. The problem is that if the only face of conservatism in the public domain are the things to which we oppose, and these days politics is played pretty hard, and so there's there's plenty of sharp and hard-edged conservative pundits and voices out there, then we can only expect it to be attractive to those who already agree or like that hard-edged oppositional, conflictual style of politics. I don't think we we should or can afford to abandon the oppositional fight. That's not what I'm saying. That's really important. 
Mm. I just think it needs to be balanced with a more positive, constructive view of the goods that come from being a conservative in terms of living a conservative life in the individual because you can actually live as a conservative outside of politics. The family is a good example here and arguably this makes a lot more sense and is more coherent within a a Christian uh, life but setting that, that aside we need to actually try and sell the fact that conservatism is not just trying to stop the barbarians at the gates taking over and the ruin of civilization it actually has a positive agenda for human flourishing mm. that is it's actually good for human beings and human societies and i think that is the piece to be honest that i don't hear in the public domain and if i don't hear it and i'm a conservative that spends a lot of time thinking about conservatism looking for the message yeah. like i say the only the only the only message particularly that young people are hearing from conservatives and let's focus on young people because they are the future is the negative piece, which I stress is essential. <laughs> that that negative fight uh, has to be done, but it can't just be the negative fight. Otherwise, I think the appeal of conservatism is going to, going to be much more diminished uh, compared to yeah. what it could be and needs to be if it's going to grow. I like what you're saying, um, and, and this is why I think there's a... And, and I get some lefty Christians are going to be offended. Um, well, you know, take it for what it is. Um, I think conservatism aligns not perfectly. I would, I would let me just say, I think conservatism aligns with the kingdom of God and Christianity. Um, I don't think God is a conservative. I think conservatism is godly. Uh, to be very clear, God is the pinnacle, the author, the creator, and, and to whom I want to calibrate. But it's because I think the kingdom of God, the word of God, uh, God's will and God's ways are the most conducive for human flourishing, prosperity, peace and justice. It's because of that um, that I think the kingdom of God is something that we should advocate. Um, and, and I think that is the reason uh, Christians, uh, sorry, Australians um, very, very dominantly, like 90% of of Australians when our constitution was being formed, although perhaps not being uh, every Sunday churchgoers, were still sentimentally religious and, and Christian and understood that that the kingdom of God, or they might have used different terms, uh, was absolutely essential. And, and that's why they insisted essentially on having some acknowledgement of God in a secular constitution with complete freedom for disbelief as well as for any denomination. Uh, and, and the insertion into our preamble that uh, all of the states, uh, New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania, um, were going to resolve to form the constitution, they in, inserted in that preamble, uh, we humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, hereby do resolve. And, and that insertion just acknowledges that that from God down, if we calibrate and align to his ideas on family and economy and liberty and 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 all of the other issues that government has to deal with, if if we calibrate to him on that, that's best for everybody. Um, I think advocating those ideas is 
is very important. And you ask something that's on Facebook, and this is probably the, the post that made me say, oh, look, I've seen enough of Jonathan posting about conservatism. I need to talk to him and, and share this with everybody. You asked the question three days ago, can you really be a conservative without also being a person of faith? I don't know if you want me to remind you of what you said in that post, but I'd like you to talk about it now. Sure. Can I, just before I do, Dave, if you don't mind, sure. Uh, you, you sort of made me think it's necessary just to provide one small bit of clarification to something I said earlier when I talked about allowing the boundary of conservatism to really mirror the diversity of perspectives that embrace the, the term. There, there is another important piece to that, which is I think it's also perfectly fine for individuals to have a normative view of what conservatism should be and to argue within conservatism, as you have outlined yourself, that this, I think, actually is the true essence of conservatism. I guess my point is we can afford to, have, to be generous in terms of acknowledging that there is a sort of wider boundary and that not every conservative inside the boundary is going to share... Yeah the perspective on this or that other issue, but I'm not saying that we can't then uh, actually pursue normative arguments and say, well, although there are some conservatives, for example, I think you used abortion as an example, who, who think actually in the early stages of conception, there is no um, sort of a moral violence in terminating a pregnancy. Of course, mm -hmm. you can argue the contrary case, but it is actually possible, and not just possible, but I think sensible to acknowledge that there are conservatives actually that have different opinions. So what I would like to see is a kind That's of conservatism it. that is secure enough to actually have debates without constantly trying to draw the boundary line to cut certain conservatives out. I think it's better to acknowledge that this person over here with whom yeah. I disagree, they are a genuine conservative, but I yeah. happen to think they're wrong. <laughs> on <laughs> this topic because I would hate yeah. to see conservatism become the worst forms of the left where it's exactly. extremely dogmatic and you just have to sign up to a set of dogma whether yeah. you believe them or not. Yeah, this is exactly why I want you on the show because uh, of this sobriety in, in your commentary and, and your thinking um, that I need to constantly be balanced with and, and certainly so many of us on, on the right side of politics need to... Uh, be balanced with as well that um, avoiding the worst of of the others and becoming the best of ourselves. I mean, the, um, the other so thing, Dave, of course, is conservatism. <clears throat> excuse me. Let's face it, is not a majority position these days, and so can we really afford to constantly narrow the boundary yeah. <laughs> of what a conservative is over yeah. specific policy debates? Difficult though those disagreements uh, might be. It's a it's a right wing type of cancellation. <laughs> well, it's it's, cancellation. it's it's kind of a self cancellation if you constantly are only willing to be in conversation with the people that share your views perfectly. Yeah, then you have become conservatism has become an ide ideology. But sorry, so having I, clarified I that, let's talk about uh, the yeah. role of faith in conservatism and. <clears throat> Allowing people who are not uh, religious, devout, uh, churchgoers, or or just whatever they call themselves, allowing for all of them to to still call themselves conservative, 
what role do you think faith has in the truest definition um, and, and calibration to conservatism? My starting point, which does flow from the clarification I just offered, is that being a Christian, being a conservative and a Christian versus being a conservative and an atheist or an agnostic does make a difference. But of course, I've just laid out my perspective that conservatism is and ought to be acknowledged and recognized as quite a diverse bunch of perspectives that cohere around some, but not all, common set of principles. So the question then is, what difference does it make if you are a person of faith? Because Judaism has had a big, pol- uh, big role in conservative thought, particularly in America. And so I want to acknowledge that. It's not like all, all of those who developed historically conservative thought were Christians. There was a strong Jewish element, particularly in America as well, throughout the 20th century. So the question is, what difference does Christianity make? I think it does make a big difference. And we do need to acknowledge that the fathers of conservative thought all were Christian men generally or deists. They had a a faith. Religion was a part. It was an assumed part, in fact, of Mm. a conservative perspective worldview. I think... um, Excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat this morning. Yeah, same, some ways too. <laughs> yeah, so I think a couple of seminal differences that uh, being a Christian, if I could just focus on the Christianity for a moment, makes is that Christians who are also conservative tend to believe in an, in an, in an objective moral order that has been revealed in Scripture and in the person Jesus Christ and that this moral order is timeless, it's good for human flourishing and therefore they are going to take strong moral stands on certain questions. Now, that doesn't mean that they necessarily subscribe to theocracy where they want to impose, although this has been attempted historically on a couple of occasions, Mm -hmm. Christian morality, but in a world, and I alluded earlier to the fact that individual freedoms for mine are a central part of the conservative dispositional outlook. But in the realm of free ideas, free conscience, free assembly, free organization, the Christian conservative is going to be advocating for a particular view on moral questions. I find, and I don't want to, I'm generalizing here, I find non-Christian conservatives are far less preoccupied, uh, tend to be far more agnostic on some of the big moral questions that drive Christians because they believe there is this moral order that is not just created in the human mind. It's real, it's subjective, and that whether you live according to that objective moral order or if you live in disobedience to it, to put it in Christian terms, that that has a very tangible difference in terms of outcome and obviously what happens to your life after death. And so I'm just, just drilling down into one point of difference there are i don't i don't want to sort of uh over generalize there are for example non-christian or non-religious perhaps better conservatives who do share the christian view on certain moral questions but to be honest and i just have to be honest because you know honesty is always the best i I Mm. don't find those arguments as coherent someone that believes there is a god that has created a universe with a moral order and that we are created in his image 
in order to live morally upstanding lives and that although we are in rebellion, God has done something definitive in Jesus Christ and particularly in his resurrection resurrection and ascension and the dissension of the Holy Spirit offers humans the ability to transcend their sinful nature and live uh, godly, I think was a, a term you, you used earlier, lives, and that the Christian view is that this is good for all humans. It's not good just for some. Correct. It's not, it's not a modern thing of like, well, you know, you can choose Christianity or Islam or Judaism or some neo-pagan new age thing, or you can be an atheist and you can be this type of atheist or you can believe in in nothing. That That's a contemporary cultural perspective. So the Christian comes in with a pretty definite view of the objective moral order. That's not to say that there's not room for debate and obviously the Bible doesn't address every particular policy question that might come down the pipeline. But I do find in my own interpersonal relationships with conservatives from the religious and the non-religious and also reading their thought that this is quite a significant um, distinction and there are many others too that I could uh, point to. Interesting. Yeah, the um, the the whole. Uh, I mean, the the notion that conservatives or Christian conservatives are imposing religious beliefs on others through democracy, I, I think, is is just uh, silliness. Um, in fact, just this morning, I was accused of this on on Facebook, where I was commenting on the Manly Seven. Uh, refusing to wear the pride jersey in the in the pride round, and uh, a friend from my year in high school, so many years ago, um, accused me of of wanting to deny homosexuals democracy, uh, deny them freedom of expression, and deny them the right to exist uh, because I was defending the right of some footballers to not conform to the affirmation of their political and ideological worldviews. I'm like, I, I think you've got that back to front, bro. Um, the, the, this isn't theocracy. This is democracy. Uh, and and you're, you're saying, oh, you know, the, the religious discrimination bill was utterly, utterly terrible trying to deny basic human rights to homosexuals. I'm like... Teaching Christian kids in a Christian school is not a human right any more than doing the social media for the Greens Party is. And, and they would certainly reject me on the basis of my worldview and identity if I applied for that job. And I would defend their right to do that. Uh, and, and so this, this question of, of theocratic imposition um, in a democratic context or via democratic means is, is just ridiculous. But it's as silly as calling democratic calling socialism democratic socialism like socialism you vote for is still socialism uh, it's it's not actually uh, a a wonderful um, bow that you can wrap around it all of a sudden and so whatever democracy does vote for well i guess everybody in a sense is actually trying to impose their worldview on others whenever they use their voice or their vote um the economic policies of, of conservatism, um, should they be any different today to what they were 200 years ago? What, what, what are they classically? And, and do you think there needs to be some, uh, some change in those? 
perhaps let me let me say um, we were talking about the free market, and I'm a big believer in the free market and and um, price mechanisms being the most e efficient form of distribution of of scarce goods and services. Um, like I, I won't get into that, but just to stick to my question, the economic policies, like we would have said 10 years ago, so many people would have said, okay, well, let's just create our own service if Facebook and, and big tech are being um, onerous and, and oppressive to conservatives. Let's let the free market solve the problem in, instead of government. That seems to me to be a fairly conservative, liberal idea. Is that still an idea that survives given we've tried that and then they shut down the hosts and they shut down the financial platforms and they, they actually, uh, you know, really monopolise in the worst, most elitist, oligarchist kind of sense possible? Um, can those economic policies of conservatism from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, uh, survive and, and flourish? Uh, are they able to be consistently applied today? I think the economic realm is one area, perhaps less obvious than some of those social moral questions where the ground has radically shifted, even from the mid 20th century high point in the conservative intellectual tradition in the US with your William F. Buckley's and your Russell Kirk's, the whole National Review period. By my, my perspective, I, I think... This is one area where conservatism needs a massive rethink and we should be holding conferences and debating and perhaps setting up some new uh, societies to try and address this question, a kind of new conservative economic thinking. And Interesting. just, I mean, I can't, it's not for me to dictate what it should, what it should be, but just to, if you like, illustrate from my own perspective why there's a new tension now for conservatives. And you started to, to take us there uh, very adeptly, uh, Dave. It's that, look, the, there's no doubt that the free market as a concept and as an economic mechanism works because it solves the informational problem that can't be solved except through <laughs> the free exchange of goods and price setting. Now, I think some... The, the, the mistake some people make is that they take this mechanism that works and apply it to everything. But what you have to recognise with free markets is it's not a moral concept. It's actually got nothing to do with morality. I would actually argue it's an amoral system. That's not to say it's immoral, but it doesn't really have morality built into it because it's just a system for the free exchange <coughs> where the free exchange and individuals who have their own sort of local information can make you know the, wise choices. The, the socialists, for want of a better term, a better umbrella term, the socialists definitely moralise price mechanisms. Um, they, they believe low wages is immoral and price gouging is immoral. Um, so it, it's... It's still a moral question, although I, I take your point. It's not talking about something in the Ten Commandments. Well, I, I, yeah, the, I, I agree that the the communist model is really an economic system that proceeds from a moral view. A moral so claim. The, yeah. the moral view is, you know, poverty is evil. The unequal distribution of wealth is evil. 
is evil. Certain people shouldn't control the means of production. It is focused on 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 a certain outcome. But I'm making a very technical point. So if you look at the basic theory of free markets, it doesn't actually assume any moral position. You could hold it as a Christian, as a Muslim, as an atheist. You could. It doesn't actually have anything to do with your view on sexuality or your your view on on this. And that this is actually why it can create a problem that we are witnessing now. But I think, to be honest, a lot of people on the right are unwilling to confront this problem. That is, we have to bring some morality into our general uh, belief that free markets should be the the sort of basic um, mechanism for organising economic exchange. There's a question of how far you extend the scope of free markets. But setting that aside for a moment, I just want to give you a couple of examples in order to to drive home this point. Pornography. The mass distribution and consumption of pornography is a classic free market at work. And yet I think it's it's socially catastrophic. Mm. This, this, in my view, is the greatest free market failure. And this is one area where, where conservatives of faith and conservatives who don't have faith, who tend to be more agnostic on moral questions and tend to primacy the free choice part, I, I, I think with, with respect, are, are, are weak, naive, and just deluded on this, this issue. So if you leave, if you extend the market into the production and viewing of sexual, you know, sexual acts, then what you find is that it becomes a multi-billion dollar industry that it dominates most internet uh, traffic and it is consumed by literally hundreds and hundreds of millions of people in a completely free pornography market, which is kind of what we've had since the internet age. There's really little stopping a 12-year-old boy from going online and looking at it. And the mm. problem is that if, if you are a free market fundamentalist, you really don't have much of an argument against that. The same could be said of prostitution. I mean, if certain women want to sell their bodies and there's a a man willing to serve as a consumer, uh, what's the problem here? They, you could have a free market in drugs at the moment. Where What is the market that has the biggest government intervention? That's drugs. <laughs> if you look mm. at the drug market, there is a production, there's a supply, there's a sale, and there are consumers. That is a, a market, but it's not free because there are police trying to to stop the production, the sale, and the consumption of drugs. And that actually interferes with the with the price. And so I just draw, I just raise those extreme examples to say that sometimes conservative Christians don't, they don't think of these things as free markets or as markets, but they are markets. And that, that just shows you that they're not moral. That's not to say again, that they're immoral. You can have a very moral market, like the general market for the production and sale of goods, I think is, it's perfectly morally fine. I mean, what, what's the problem with someone manufacturing a car and someone buying the car? I don't think I have, and it's it's socially useful. So, I'm not I'm not trying to say that this moral problem is in all markets. The pro- the the point I'm alluding to is if you just allow the market to do everything, then you get a free market in <clears> pornography, <throat> in drugs, in prostitution, mm. and a whole range of uh, other things, and you get that because the morality is not in the market. Humans will buy and sell all kinds of things. And if you have a Christian anthropology 
then you realize that some of the things humans are going to produce, sell, and purchase are not going to be good for them <laughs> or mm. society. And the other problem with markets, just to come into your sort of Facebook, Twitter, social media space, is that monopoly is always a possibility in a free market. It's not an inevitability, but it is a possibility. And I know sometimes that possibility comes about through government interventions. And I acknowledge that this whole question of, you know, the argument against market failure is that it's usually the government's fault. But just parking that uh, to one side, again, it's not just that the markets are amoral, but they don't really have a social philosophy attached to them. So that it never really asks the question, is this market good socially? Because it tends to just focus on the individual as a producer and a consumer, which works, I stress, that works beautifully <laughs> in sort mm. of 80 to 90% of the situations. But when you get a monopoly over speech, something that's only made possible by a new technology that didn't exist 20 years ago, and it's mm. fascinating because, see, I, I have this conservative view, which I would say is a more traditional conservative view, which recognizes that the market's not moral or immoral. We actually have to bring our morality to questions of the market and ask ourselves, is this actually a healthy market? And are the outcomes actually healthy? And so in this case, suddenly we've discovered that actually a pretty free market, and it has been pretty free, um, has been captured by the first movers who developed the technology. It's an addictive technology that um, humans are kind of and designed in a way to leverage and exploit to some extent human psychology. Again, that's not to say that there aren't good things from social media. You and I both use it, Dave. So let's not, I don't want to call yeah, you right now. I acknowledge, like a lot of technology, it's a double edged sword. But the problem is, this is quite a unique. Monopoly. It's one thing to mon monopolize the production of cars because that's bad really only in the price sense that there's no competition and so you, you might end up paying more over time. Well, the there's, also, there's also the social implications of a monopoly in the car market. And, and I know a case study that Thomas Sowell wrote about was in India where they had a, a closed protectionist market. And, uh, and Price aside, their drive for consumer protections in the product uh, standards and, and quality controls were were greatly jeopardized. And, and the road fatality rate in India prior to the opening up of their market to international competition uh, was, was atrocious. And it was a great disservice and failure of government uh, for the Indian people. And all of a sudden, when foreigners started to compete in the market, it not only drove down prices, but it drove up safety. Uh, and, yeah. and so the price mechanism alone um, is one benefit, but not all the benefits of the free This market. is the point, Dave. This, this is the point. So a monopoly, say, in a manufacturing industry like cars mm -hmm. is bad. There's no doubt it's bad because you end up with an inferior product because there's no need to make it good and improve because there's no competition. You can end up paying far more. But that's quite different from the social consequences of a monopoly on a speech service where there is this thing called terms and conditions. Mm. And the corporation, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, has the ability to amplify or suppress certain perspectives. 
Now that that is when you think about it, that's quite different from having to pay more from a car. In yeah. terms of social consequences, this is massive potentially. And yeah. this is a giant experiment. Now, I don't know what the solution is. People are saying we want more competition. There are people trying that, but it's very hard to compete with those first movers, Facebook and Twitter, which have mm. gobbled up an enormous slice of the the market in speech technology. There's ideas about breaking them up and this, that, and the other. But we're entering, this is a perfect example of how technology can actually change the ground on which you have built your economic philosophy. And mm. this is difficult. This doesn't come naturally for conservatives because we actually look to the past often for wisdom and guidance. And there's enormous wisdom and guidance in the past. And one of our cultural social problems is that we have turned our back on the past. In fact, we're demonizing it. And so yep. by demonizing it, we're demonizing many good, true, and beautiful things that we need to look to the past to get. So, but so there are me, certain um, economic realities now that that really, sorry to cut you off, force conservatives, like the, the old mantras don't work anymore in, in, in my view. And we have to think more creatively in a way that responds to new circumstances and the economic circumstances now, and particularly the tech, technological element, I think mm. are, are extremely novel and really difficult to understand like cryptocurrency just to take one example that i've done quite a lot of uh looking at that and it, it's that also seems to confound the notion of what a market is because it's so, so hard to wrap your head around what the actual product or good is mm. That that's a big question in itself. <laughs> that, I'm sure we would get a lot of views if we did an hour talking about the morality of cryptocurrency. Um, I, I want to acknowledge, uh, I guess, the difference, and, and maybe even try and articulate my my thinking on how conservatism can adapt to these new questions of of the tensions, and it is a tension uh, without a solution. It's a tension that needs a, a balance to be managed. Um, as opposed to solved, um, and that is the tension between market freedom and social benefit. Um, and and when you start to try and erode freedoms for the sake of the greater good, I, I think that's quintessential fascism, um, and there's something to be uh, avoided right there. Um, and so while I am not opposed to sometimes being called a libertarian, I, I think libertarians fundamentally believe in absolute freedoms and I don't. I think there's very few freedoms that are absolute. I think, um, you know, freedom of, of conscience is probably one that comes close to uh, an absolute human right. Um, but then there are, you know, then there's, there's the old tests like uh, your freedom ends at the tip of my nose. Um, that, well, I think that might have been John Locke who, say, who said that. But, you know, so uh, a, a radical Islamist extremist's um, freedom of conscience is, is not an absolute right to the point where he's swinging a scimitar at my neck. Um, that's, there, there are limits, uh, I think, to all freedoms. And I think any sensible person should agree with that. But it does come harder when we talk about... Uh, G.K. Chesterton said... Uh, there, there is an idea 
which stops all ideas, and that is the only idea that should be stopped, talking about the limits of free speech. When, when your exercise of free speech is intended as a, and maybe even effective without intention, as a suppression on somebody else's free speech, well, then that is where your free speech should be limited. Uh, a perfect example is when I was doing a tour in 2018, a bunch of Antifa wanted to protest and, and shut down the events. And I was asserting free speech. This is why you guys shouldn't be doing that behaviour. Um, it, it's toxic and it's, quite frankly, domestic terrorism to the extent that they went uh, threatening and harming and seeking to terrorise people who held a different political idea or even wanted to hear a different political idea. And they said, oh, I thought you believed in free speech, but you won't let us protest. I'm like, no. Free speech means you can hire a hall and talk to your heart's content about how evil I am. You can do the same thing as I'm doing, um, but you don't get to trespass on private property and you don't get to threaten other people's physical safety. Uh, that's not free speech because that is behaviour which limits free speech. And so free speech to limit free speech is not uh, a human right. So I, I say that to illustrate uh, the question, and I think the moral test for so many of these things, these freedoms and these rights, which conservatives and libertarians would champion alike, but I think conservatism needs to understand, and, and perhaps we always did know, but need to refresh that freedom has a purpose, and that freedom is not freedom from certain things alone, but it's also freedom for certain things. And, and this is informed by an understanding of objective moral truth. This is un informed by Christianity and understanding um, that I think the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, so many world religions will say, don't do anything that you wouldn't want somebody doing to you. And they think that's the same thing as the golden rule, uh, because Jesus actually took it a whole step further than any other world religion and, and said, no, don't just avoid behavior that you would object to actually engage in behavior that you would like. Be proactive about love. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And, and, and then we come to the parable of the Good Samaritan where it, it's, it's, we actually have our freedom um, not for self-indulgence but for the benefit of, of others. And, and that doesn't mean we're now obliged and government is authorized to compel charity, um, but it, it, it does mean that that is... The, the true north when we're discussing big tech and free market and economic systems um, is that, okay, I, I'm opposed to really high minimum wages, but the freedom to choose how much I pay somebody is not so I can exploit them. It's so that I can prosper and cause them to prosper and provide a service which benefits more people to the market. And, and, and this is all really, really fundamental. But uh, so hard to encapsulate because it's so nuanced. You, it's really hard to reduce to a, a three or four word slogan come election time. Dave, I like that example about the employer employee because that is also a good illustration of my moral point about free markets and the fact that they are amoral. That, that's the logic, if you like, of a free market. And it's easy for individuals to hide behind the amorality of the market to justify their decision. So as an employer, of course, you can pay the lowest wage 
that the market will bear. And so if people are working, willing to work for you at a, a certain price, that's the market at work. But there's nothing forcing you to underpay your workers, assuming you're making a healthy profit. I mean, obviously, sometimes you have to lay off workers for the survival of the business. But the point is there, there is discretion and some freedom within the market for not just individual workers, but employers. How much do you return to shareholders? Um, how much do you put into protecting the environment? How much do you pay your workers? What kind of conditions do, do you give them? That's, in a way, it can look like the market dictates that. And in a certain sense, it does if you accept the amoral logic of the market, which is I just go for the, the lowest common denominator people will work for but of course there are lots of extremely ethical business owners and employers who go well beyond what the market demands in terms mm -hmm. of looking after their employers now i'm i'm not, not trying to sort of make an argument either way really i'm just pointing out i'm trying to again illustrate my this concept that it's we humans that bring morality to the market and you can see that in the way that different business owners behave differently mm. <laughs> because and, there are and, choices uh, that can be made. And, and I have to, I mean, it is a question, of, it's a debate of morality on, on, the, on the right side, on the conservative side. Um, libertarian will we'll be arguing for greater employer freedom. Uh, that, I mean, it is an oppressive injustice that causes harm um, demonstrated by higher unemployments in certain demographics, such as youth, who are disadvantaged by lack of education, lack of experience, lack of qualification, lack of maturity, quite frankly. Um, they, they're a much higher unemployment rate because there's this third party involved in all negotiations that says, well, they might be willing to work for you for free or for nearly nothing for a year, in order to gain training, qualification and experience and, and be more competitive uh, in future uh, commercial negotiations. But this third party enters the, the, agree, the negotiation and says, yes, but here's the minimum and, and, and thereby making the negotiation more complex because there's more people that have to be satisfied um, in creating the unemployment that's higher in, in young people. I mean, that's... But then you've got the moral arguments of the people on the more statist interventionist side of, of the argument, which say, but yes, there, there is people taking advantage. Um, there is too many people, a lot of people taking advantage of the freedom to negotiate and, and the power that they have against your examples of, of uh, you know, oppressed people, or um, that's not the right word, but you know, disadvantaged people groups and by their youth and inexperience, um, they don't have the power to negotiate for what they actually want to agree to. And so we need to enter the, the, the bargain and avoid, you know, the exploitation of child labor and, and all kinds of social ills um, that perhaps unionism did some good in, in, in centuries past. Um, so the, the, the morality on both sides, um, it, it's interesting the way you're talking, and I probably even need to digest it better, just the amorality of markets um, because the morality is brought into it by both sides of the argument. One side saying uh, this is exploitation and that's immoral um, and one side saying, well, this is 
oppression and interventionism and denial of liberty, and that's immoral. Um, and, and I think, Dave, if I may, that the, the whole, really the underlying point here and my what I would say to people on the right, because this market question does bring in some of the differences between conservatives and libertarians and different subspecies on both sides. My, my view as a sort of conservative, very sort of traditionalist, old school conservative, is don't make the mistake of thinking that the amorality of the market is a kind of morality. That is, acknowledge that it's it's morally neutral. And so it's able to be exploited by a psychopath who can can really make the worker <laughs> live a very selfish life that makes the work the market work for them. Yeah. But it can also uh, be used for great good by a Mother Teresa-like figure who employs lots of people, produces a really useful, socially benef beneficial product or service and makes, you know, there are corporations and business owners that make enormous contributions through their, their um, charitable giving or backing or getting involved in all kinds of communal activities and, and, and lives. And so we just have to, as conservatives, I think, just make sure we recognize that not make the mistake of deriving our morality from the market and turning it into a kind of idol that it isn't. It's yes. a very effective mechanism that preserves individual freedoms and that works <laughs> in the day-to-day -day cut and thrust of the kind of production, sale and purchase mm. and consumption of goods that we all need to survive. Let's not then turn this good, effective, successful thing into a form of idolatry. And I mean, I, I was about to say if I have one criticism of libertarianism, but the truth is I have many <laughs> but i yeah. think that there is a tendency and I, and I think this is where the the lack of religion actually is quite telling to turn that individual freedom in the market as the supreme virtue and the supreme moral good and so it doesn't matter what the social consequence it doesn't matter whether there are losers in the market which of course there is we all we all see the homeless people and, and of course we could debate until the end of days, who's <clears throat> responsible? Mm. Um, I just think that this is a really important point and distinction. And there's no false dichotomy here. It's not that you're either in favor of markets and bow down and worship at the idol of markets, or you have to be some kind of status communist socialist. No, no. <laughs> They're not actually the only two alternatives. And if I could just give one final... It's, little... really, a, it's really a question of points between two extremes where's the balance is it and and this is I, I think the tension i mean the immigration question is is a good example very few people believe in either closed borders or open borders mm -hmm. uh, it's a question of how many people is the right number of people to bring in what's the right uh ratios and and balances and you know priorities do we give priority to people who are culturally compatible or do we not care um yeah. It, the, the question is about sensibilities somewhere between extremes. Yeah, yeah. And, and if I could just circle back to your point about freedom, because I, I did want to say something on that, because that's also really germane. And uh, it's, it operates in a similar way for the conservative, I think. I mean, everyone, as far as I can see, right down to the most minimalist government libertarian, believes there are some constraints on freedom. So in that in the most uh, sort of 
extreme form of libertarianism, you know, they draw the line at murder and a couple of other other crimes. Obviously, you can't exercise your freedom to do unsolicited, free speech unwarranted speech is one where you find a lot of absolutism in libertarians. Uh, the free speech absolutists are not rare. Yeah, yeah. And see, the thing from my conservative perspective, and I agree with, with you, there are at least four constraints on speech that I, that I want to um, list. And there's defamation is one because I, I just don't, I think the consequences of falsely accusing someone public of child sexual abuse, particularly in an internet age, Mm. Uh, so damaging that I, I think individuals have a right to the protection of lies that can really sort of make it impossible for you to even make a living. I think there's a natural constraint on incitement to violence, although that's a very difficult one to define and get the, the balance right. And I think there's a natural constraint on uh, copyright. I do think, I don't think it's fair to just steal people's intellectual property and and monetize that and particularly if i can agree with you or or maybe just insert this comment that um i think god god is um demonstrably not a free speech absolutist uh, given he has a commandment of the ten commandments not to bear false witness against your neighbor indeed Um, so yeah obviously he's a big fan of liberty but uh, not an absolutist about doing anything for any reason for any indulgent reason well, it's created a world that contains a lot of freedom within it. But the mm. and the, the fourth one is perhaps less popular, but I, I do think that um, governments and government agencies like police forces and intelligence services do actually have a right to suppress some speech where it does endanger the human lives of sources and can compromise important... Um, national secrets like defence capability, defence plans that could be injurious to society as a whole. But this is what I want to say, Dave. So the the problem is once you acknowledge that there's even one exception and so you're no longer a free speech absolutist, then you have, there's a danger that you have to be attendant to, which is you have to try and keep the exception line threshold extremely high Mm. but it has a tendency (laughs) to come down and conservatives have to acknowledge this and this is where libertarians have a powerful criticism of conservatism because once you open that door for example to the four exceptions i just ranged well take the national security secrecy thing that can easily be manipulated by a government (laughs) and the scope of what counts as national security or endangering national security can easily be um, broadened and extended in ways that really have no justification and which are going to ultimately be Mm -hmm. damaging. But I, as a conservative, I think there's no way around acknowledging and accepting that there are some constraints. Say, if we just stick with speech, freedom of assembly is the same. I mean, do a, a right of armed insurgents have the right to assemble, train, plan, plot? An insurrection. Mm. I'll, personally, I would draw the the line there, but the problem is we need to recognise that the the line is difficult to draw, and we have to make it as as narrow as possible. Yeah, and that I agree. Is, and that is that is that is our problem right now. Is that we've in the free 
domain. We've gone well beyond what I regard as the four legitimate exceptions, which should have a very high threshold. And we've introduced this notion of offence, which is not, I note, one of my four exceptions. And I think there should be no protection for offence uh, whatsoever. So the moment you introduce offence, you have a massive problem. Offence is a subjective uh, issue. Copyright is pretty objective. If I publish a book and then someone in India publishes the same book, gives it a different title and, and sells a million copy, well, my speech has actually been violated in, in, in my view and somebody's making money off a product that I'm entitled to a reward for my hard labour and effort. But that's pretty objective. Once you do a offence, that threshold, in my view, is just guaranteed to collapse because... Anyway, if once we define offence yeah. according to the subjectivity and the feelings of millions of individuals, in a way, the whole game's over them, which is why I really don't think offence should be the measure. And I think one thing that conservatives need to balance in terms of confronting uh, cancel culture, which is really predicated on on offence and harms the other one, this, this idea that, that words harm, and I'm quite skeptical about this idea that um, words have this magical power to sort of destroy individuals but that's that's just me yeah the problem is conservatives need 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 to be consistent in both directions so we can't cry when we're offended if our whole argument is that offense is not a good reason to cancel someone or to shut someone up and so in my own life i try to just wear whatever criticism comes my way because I yeah. really, I, I, I'm trying to fight against this culture where um, speech is curtailed on the basis of offence. Because I, I think that is an extremely dangerous idea. And we've already gone far too far down this, this path and we need to pull it back. And actually, there's an opportunity to make people more resilient. Because I just don't believe there's a, there's a world we can live in where you never hear a, a bad word or an idea or see an image or are exposed to any of this that that you find offensive. The the solution yeah. to feeling upset or hurt is not to never hear the speech. It's to learn to become robust, secure, and strong enough so that you can withstand that. And the great irony here, Dave, is that we Christians have learned to do this <laughs> because comedians have been making fun of us and society has been making fun of us for decades. We live in a world where where the one sort of uh, group of human beings who are not allowed to take offence and have to wear it are Christians. Muslims yep. don't have to wear it. People are too afraid to say anything about Islam. You can't say anything about members of the LGBTIQ community, um, you know, black people and the like. And again, I'm not saying the point's not that we want to encourage <laughs> bad speech. I'm just saying as a Christian, I know it is possible actually to hold your beliefs, to be offended, but to survive that and to not go to the knee-jerk response that we have to suppress all speech critical of Christianity. I don't want to live in a world where you're not allowed to criticise Christianity. I don't enjoy it. I don't find it comfortable. Yeah, no. I, well, I can see that this is extremely important, but I, yeah. there are a few people in other groups willing to say that as far as I can see. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. Um, I, I I want all ideas to be criticised because I think the solution to bad speech is more speech. 
um, whatever hate speech is, whoever gets to define it, the solution is more speech, not suppression of thinking. Um, like I've, I've been in churches where pastors didn't want debates going on about contentious theology or politics. And I'm like, hang on, if there's people with toxic ideas, this is where they need to be corrected. This is where they need to be formed spiritually and, and politically. And you know what? If they're right, they deserve the chance to show us we're wrong. Um, that, that's like, let's, let's exercise the toxicity in our communities, um, draw it out and, and heal it. Uh, bring sunshine and antiseptic to it with with truth and debate and and hopefully uh, even if we can't change the the advocates uh, mind the person advocating evil there's going to be 20 times more people watching uh, who who can hear the reasoned explanations of why truth is truth and morality is moral and and God is good and and we can uh, you know help a lot of people by by having, conversations about bad and evil uh, topics and ideas. We have unfortunately uh, run out of time because I've got to run to a radio studio. Uh, for anybody who has the time and ability, um, I'm going to be on Vision Radio in half an hour, live with Neil Johnson on the 2020 program. You can tune in and listen live at vision.org.au forward slash listen. Uh, on that website, you'll also be able to find the local frequency near you where you can uh, tune in on your radio. And you can probably listen to it on the podcast uh, later on as well. You, you'll definitely be able to. That's the 2020 program with Neil Johnson. Little plug there. We'd love you to call in and, and say good day. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time and your, your thinking. Um, and, um, I, I, yeah, I just love talking with you. And I said last time we should do this more often. But, um, yeah, let's let's do this ag again soon. And um, and we will, yeah, have a great deal of fun, I think, ad advocating and, and just constantly having these conversations about how do we zero in on truth, morality, justice and, and liberty for a, the best nation possible uh, where we live, wherever we live. So, yeah, thanks, jo Dr. Jonathan Cole, for your time. And look, uh, as you say goodbye, uh, please tell us where people can tune in to listen to more of your ideas and conversations that you have with other right-thinking people. Yeah, people can uh, check out my podcast, The Political Animals. Dave has been a guest on the show before. I, as Dave mentioned, I'm active on uh, Facebook. I can't actually remember what my uh, <laughs> address there is. I also have a website, jonathancole.com.au, if you're interested in my writing. Awesome. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this episode of uh, Pello Talk. Um, and if you'd like to become a supporter, please head to davepello.com. Um, desperately need more and more people uh, to, to contribute to the work that's going on here. We've got to expand. We've got to grow. The work is enormous. The mission is enormous. It's going to take decades to turn the ship of culture back towards morality, common sense, justice and, and liberty. Uh, and I think the, the most important place to wage that battle among all places which should be done simultaneously is here in culture, the, the mountain of the arts and, and media uh, where people get their entertainment and information is uh, well and truly infiltrated, dominated and taken by the left, uh, those enemies of objective morality, uh, those advocates of the French Revolution um, and Marxism and, and other 
just anti-social toxic ideas. Uh, so thanks very much for your time. We will see you in the next episode. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.